I'll sing it. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. During the thick of the holidays, when you're ready for a break or some alone time, there's a bunch more NPR podcasts you should check out. Comedy and pop culture, creative storytelling, and insights into economics and the hidden forces that shape us. Find all our NPR podcasts at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. And enjoy the holidays. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here in your feed with our weekly roundup a day earlier than usual because we've got a surprise that will show up in your podcast feed this weekend, but we can't tell you what it is. This week, there's plenty of news to discuss, the latest GOP debate, a big speech from Hillary Clinton, and presidential candidate Carly Fiorina snacking on milk bones? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. First, some introductions. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, journalist emeritus. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I like that. I like that. The rocks. Professor, <laughs> Professor the Ron. The endowed chair of the journalistic arts. <laughs> And first up, the GOP debate. We all stayed up very late on Tuesday. Sam, you were there at the debate. I was there at the Venetian. Oh, the, I it like was the Venetian. Big rooms. Yeah, they um, have great rooms yeah, there. Yeah, they do. But that's not what we're here okay. to talk about. All right. <laughs> the debate. First impressions, guys? I honestly, Jeb Bush made the impression on me. I mean, just because this is the most impression period that I think he's made in a debate yet. He's he, he found first, his exclamation point. Yeah. First time in the highlight reel for Yeah, Jeb. he took aim at Trump, and it really seemed like he sort of got Trump going sometimes. And I, I mean, how much it helps Bush at this point, who's really sunk in the polls, who knows? Uh, but it seems, you know, like he, he may be on the ropes, and he's really just sort of getting out there now. And that moment of him saying that, you know, Trump can't win the election on insults, mm-hmm. that line really worked for the crowd. Donald, uh, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. That's not going to happen. And I do have the strength. And the other one-liner he had was something to the effect of, I'm not sure if you watch the Sunday morning shows or the Saturday morning shows. Yes, when he said he got his foreign policy and national security advice from watching the shows. I won't get my information from the shows. I don't know if that's Saturday morning or Sunday morning. I don't know which one. I will oh, seek this, out this the best talking about like a cartoon yeah. reference? Right, yeah. Well, you know or, that, or Saved or by the Bell. The, but there was the a long instance. Like, what I noticed about just the overwhelming vibe of this debate is that Trump's tone and rhetoric has rubbed off on these candidates. Mm -hmm. They are speaking in the harshest of tones in the way that Trump is. Like you had Kasich saying he would punch Russia in the nose. Chris Christie was talking about shooting down all the Russian planes. The rhetoric has begun to match Trump's bellicosity, is that the word? And it's sort of the over-the-top, everything exactly. in superlative. Sensational. The worst president ever, the worst decision ever. Everything has to be either the best or the worst. Exactly. And there was this real debate that broke out within the debate uh, between Marco Rubio, who is the senator from Florida, and Ted Cruz, who is the senator from Texas. And I think that these two candidates ultimately could be fighting it out for the nomination. And they got in a very substantive debate about immigration reform. Does Ted Cruz rule out ever legalizing people that are in this country illegally now? Senator Cruz? I have Will never rule- supported it legalization. Do you rule it out? 
I have never supported legalization, and I do not intend to support legalization. And let me tell you how you do this. I, I mean, what this is a very interesting thing because Marco Rubio was one of the authors of the big immigration reform bill, comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed in the Senate in 2013. It was the Gang of Eight. And it had a path to legalization, correct? And it had mm-hmm. more than that. It had a path to citizenship. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it was a very big deal. It ultimately died in the House because there wasn't a lot of support for it. And this is a weakness in the primary for Marco Rubio. But he's backed away from that stance since, right? He is completely backed away from it. He Actually, he still says that there could be, should be a path to citizenship. But it is a very, 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 very long path. Now, this seems like a fine point between legalization and citizenship. It is not. It is a critical point, particularly for the Republican Party. Because if Republicans can get behind the idea of legalization, they can probably restore, especially with the right nominee, their appeal to more conservative Hispanics. George W. Bush got 40 percent of the Hispanic vote in 2004. That's the holy grail for Republicans to get back to at least 40 percent. They could do it on legalization. But if they go for citizenship, then suddenly you're talking about a very large increase in the number of potential Hispanic voters. And that means that down the road, since the Democrats are getting at least 60 percent of that vote, even under the best Republican scenario, they are putting themselves behind the eight ball electorally. And where does Cruz stand on this? That is what Marco Rubio was doing. He was it was sort of this Jedi mind trick kind of thing where he was taking this thing that's a weakness for him and in some ways a strength for Cruz and trying to make it a weakness because for Cruz. Because Cruz is total no path. Well, because what right? Cruz did to the Gang of Eight bill was he introduced this amendment that got rid of the path to citizenship and instead just made it a path to legalization. Mm. And now Ted Cruz says he opposes legalization. And so it created this, hey, whoa, what are you for? Marco Rubio was able to say that Ted Cruz supported legalization when Ted Cruz says he doesn't support legalization. And the interesting thing is that what are people talking about after this debate? Many people are talking about what Ted Cruz's position actually is on legalization. Here he was on Fox News last night with Brett Baer, who who gave him a very hard time. It sounded like he wanted the bill to pass. Uh, of course I wanted the bill to pass, What my amendment to pass. What my amendment did is take citizenship off the table, but it doesn't mean what it, what it doesn't mean. Ted Cruz never stumbles. I was going to say, that, never is, that is a very that is interesting. Interesting. Ted Cruz. Yeah. And, and that is the Jedi mind trick that Marco Rubio pulled on Ted Cruz. So here's the thing. I I went back and I found some of the tape of Ted Cruz talking about his amendment back in 2013. Uh, Here he is in the Judiciary Committee. I don't want immigration reform to fail. I want immigration reform to pass. And so I would urge people of good faith on both sides of the aisle, if the objective is to pass common sense immigration reform that secures the borders, that improves legal immigration, and that allows those who are here illegally to come in out of the shadows, then we should look for areas of bipartisan agreement. He's not saying that now. And and just so you don't think it's an aberration, here he is on the floor of the Senate a, a little while later. If the proponents of this bill actually demonstrate a commitment not to politics, not to campaigning all the time, but to actually fixing this problem, to finding a middle ground, that would fix the problem and also allow for those 11 million people who are here illegally a legal status 
with citizenship off the table. I believe that's the compromise that can pass. So, so Ted Cruz was for legalization before he was against it. He's now saying, oh, no, no, no. I didn't want the bill to pass and I didn't really want legalization. His explanation is I was just trying to show the hypocrisy of the Democrats. Mm. And Sounds so suspect. It's a poison it, so pill. Do, yeah. And he was saying it's a poison pill. But so the question is, was he being disingenuous then or is he being disingenuous now? OK, so should Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio be the GOP nominee how much do they change their positions on this? How much do they moderate in a general election, if, think, if at all? I think Marco Rubio has been very careful not to rule out citizenship. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that, because for many Latino voters, Republican and Democratic, a path to citizenship is a threshold issue. Which is exactly why the hardest core of the Republican Party conservatives don't trust Marco Rubio. That's why they prefer Ted Cruz or Donald Trump. Many cases, they're moving away from Trump and towards Cruz. These are the people who really care about policy and really care about a, a hardline conservative view of policy. But what's to keep Cruz from becoming more moderate on this issue if he becomes a nominee? The fact that he's Ted Cruz. Yeah. OK. <laughs> All right. Um, Sam, you were in the spin room after the debate. And the spin room is, of course, this room where the candidates and their surrogates and everybody else comes in along with a mob of reporters. And it's like a mosh pit uh, where people are putting happy spins on everything. What what did you see? What did you learn in the spin room this time around? I noticed that there were two distinct narratives. If you listened to party leadership that was in that room, they said, this was a good debate. The voters will have their say. Everything is great. But if you ask the right people, you would see that there is this underlying current of unease. You know, there was this Washington Post article out a few days ago that basically said top party brass had a secret meeting to discuss what to do if Trump continues to surge, if they have to have what's called a brokered convention where no one wins the first vote for the nominee. And there's this narrative that everyone's kind of scared. And I talked to folks that are no longer involved in the party directly, and they said they've never seen erase this up in the air. Perhaps the most important reason that there is a Republican National Committee or a Democratic National Committee is to organize the quadrennial convention to nominate a candidate for president. It's all kind of devised to produce a winner and a unified convention. The last thing they want is a crazy deadlocked convention with bad television for four nights or more. <laughs> what an unthinkable <laughs> thought, a longer than four nights convention. But that's what used to happen whenever they were deadlocked. Sometimes they would go on for weeks. Oh now, gosh. this wait, wait, wait. is- How often actual... has this happened? Back in the 1920s, there were conventions that were so out of control, they kept on meeting literally for more than two weeks. Wow. So, so let's let's- Let's put that out of our minds. Sam and I never just happen. almost fainted, I think. It will never happen in the modern era. Well, they, just even the idea of actual suspense mm -hmm. at a convention hasn't happened, yeah. well, in the lifetimes of at least three of us. And the RNC world. has changed the rules before to stop the drama. They did it most recently with Ron Paul. They changed the rules to keep Ron Paul from surging and possibly making the convention crazy, right? That is right. And they will normally be looked to to do whatever is necessary to settle things down and get a unified convention and a consensus candidate. If that's impossible, and, and the reason that most people are even talking about this is because Donald Trump is blowing up everybody's expectations expectations, who was talking about Donald Trump 12 months ago or nine months ago. Because of that, 
all bets are off. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen, and you could wind up with a lot of confusion in Cleveland, and that is the last thing that the RNC wants. Of course, if they have a dinner, they're going to be talking about it. What should we expect the RNC to do? So they're telling me we could, even if we wanted to, we couldn't do anything until the convention anyway, so it's just the voters' decision and we aren't in it. Does that make sense to you, Ron? Also, uh, in just a few days, Sam, there's going to be this nice round man in a red suit who's going to come down your chimney and bring you a lot of presents. (laughs) Kwanzaa Claus. That's right, because it's Kwanzaa. (laughs) Of course that's what they're going to say. And just because the Republican National Committee, the official Republican Party, can't do anything until the convention doesn't mean that... Republicans can't do anything. And there are what, there there are people having dinners all over the yeah. place coming up with strategies. Of, but there what are, are the tactics think, that you can employ between well, now and the convention? You, you try could, to unify behind an alternative candidate. And if the party does not want Donald Trump to be its nominee, they have to have one opponent, not three, who five, Who has the biggest seven. chance of being that consensus I person? I would say either... Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, but we'll have to see. Not at all Jeb Bush? I don't no. think Jeb Bush huh. is viable at this point, although, as we said earlier, he did have his best debate thus his far. It's only taken him yeah. five debates to get to the point where he's in the highlight reel. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Slow burn, man. Tortoise hair, something about that. I don't know. Speaking mm-hmm. of burn, uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was Feel the I, burn, man. I give you the slow okay. pitch across the plate. Feel the chase. Tamara Keith knocks it out of the park. Tamara Keith has never actually knocked a ball out of the park in real softball, but let's take it. Bernie Sanders' campaign is out with new information that Sanders has brought in 2 million individual contributions. That is a very big number of campaign contributions. I think the average amount is something around 20 or $30. It's a lot That's, of money. I mean, the, the thing about Bernie Sanders with these small donations has always been, or with anybody and their small donations has always been, uh, you know, pointedly, this is about donations, not donors. Yes. So if I give Bernie Sanders $20, he has my name, he has my email address maybe, and he can come back to me for more money. So a lot of these might be repeat donors, which is a big part of the small donation strategy. You get one, you, you're you likely to get more. And That's then you right. say, give me three bucks, and then you say, but I need five this week. Yes. Does this help him get votes? I mean, the, the strength and that number... Does that mean that he's more likely to win primaries and caucuses? Well, it means you have that many more people at the very least with buy-in. That's right. I mean, because like Howard Dean had a bunch of donors. Yeah. You know, like what actually does it mean in the longer scheme? Well, Barack Obama managed to convert those lists of donors into people who actually turned out, particularly in caucus states where there isn't a lot of publicity and there isn't a lot of participation and people don't automatically go vote on some big, well-advertised primary day. That was a huge secret behind his overtaking Hillary Clinton in 2008. So he used the first the the donor strategy where you just take 20 bucks and then you come back and you say give me another 5 and and you keep getting people more and more involved in your campaign and then you use that to organize them on caucus day and then you're winning the Dakotas and the Idahos and so on and that helped him a lot in the delegate count when he was losing big states like California and Texas and New York. Mm-hmm. Is Bernie doing that? I don't see Bernie doing that because Hillary is still going to win those big states and she is going to be much better this time around in terms of organizing the caucuses. I think she's learned a lot of lessons from 2008. But also, this is a strategy to keep himself looking like a viable alternative to Hillary Clinton, which of course he is. The problem is he's running 20 points behind in the national polls. The biggest benefit he has is he can very possibly win New Hampshire. If he does, then there's a contest for at least a month or two, and we'll see if his resources can hold out. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton, since we were on that topic a little bit. 
She gave a big speech this week um, about defeating ISIS, about terrorism at home. Uh, It was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she did something in that speech that President Obama didn't quite do when he gave his speech and his press conferences about the terrorist attack in San Bernardino. She, in a way that was a little different, really acknowledged the fear that people are feeling. On 9-11, we learned that terrorists in Afghanistan could strike our homeland. From Fort Hood to Chattanooga to the Boston Marathon, we saw people radicalized here carrying out deadly attacks. But San Bernardino felt different. Maybe it was the timing coming so soon after the Paris attacks. Maybe it was how random it seemed A terrorist attack in a suburban office park, not a high-profile target or symbol of American power. It made us all feel it could have been anywhere at any time. So maybe, you know, you you brought this up, how she sort of acknowledged people's fear. Maybe dissect this a bit because— Uh, We started off talking about the Republican debate, which was, you know, very much about fear. And she is here acknowledging the fear. So what is Hillary Clinton doing differently from the Republicans here in how she's talking about the San Bernardino attack? Well, for one, her tone is a bit softer. Well, yeah, 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 absolutely. And she's also, you know, very clearly trying to take a hard line about, Mm -hmm. like, you know, fighting ISIS. That is also something she's doing. And she sounded a little bit like that other Clinton from back in the 90s who was gifted at sharing people's pain and fact, that's how that phrase got to be a bit of a cliche. She was channeling that, I thought, just a little bit. She was showing empathy. She was recognizing fear and, in a sense, empathizing with fear, but not stoking the fears. And that Mm -hmm. was the big difference between her speech and what went on that night in Las Vegas. So I didn't know that this speech happened, (laughs) and I cover politics. And I brought this up last podcast, but I am continually asking myself, where is Hillary Clinton? I was in my apartment last night walking by a neighbor. She knows that I cover the campaign. She stopped me and said, Sam, what's going on with Hillary? What's her deal? And so I know she's doing events. I know she's doing press. But it just seems like she is not at all in the conversation the way that the, that the GOP side is. Well, I'll tell you where she is. She's in Iowa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a few texts last night from family members that went to one of her events. And now I should point out, these are not necessarily family members that are Hillary supporters. But this is also part of what you do in Iowa yeah. every four years. It's This is the entertainment in town. I'm going to go see the, you know, whether it's Rick Santorum or Hillary or whoever, you go you go hear him talk. So, yeah. I she's she's doing the personal thing. She's she got, she may not be on CNN, but she's not she's not doing it for us. And anyway, she's in the you know? local papers and the local news outlets, and I get yes, that. Yeah. But I guess she feels like she's strong enough in the polls with the money to just kind of sit tight and wait. Yeah. The, the frustration for Bernie Sanders is that while he has roughly as much of the Democratic vote as Donald Trump has of the Republican vote, maybe not quite as much, but you could put them in the same general ballpark, he can't get much attention at all, even when he tries. Hillary might be ducking some of that national attention a little bit because it doesn't really hurt her mm-hmm. to be out of the national eye and in the Iowa eye at this particular moment, and New Hampshire, of course, as well. So for, for Bernie, though, he here he is with 30-some percent of the Democratic vote, comparable to Donald Trump's share on the other side, and, and he can't buy mm-hmm. his picture on television. He's getting seconds, maybe a few minutes here and there, particularly in broadcast television as opposed to cable, and that's terribly frustrating to his campaign. They're calling it a corporate blackout. They're saying it's a kind of, of tacit conspiracy uh, between the networks. 
The truth is the Democratic candidates just simply aren't the news right now the way the Republican candidates are, and neither of them is generating much media attention. When does that change? It changes when we get to Iowa. Uh, Something that didn't happen this week, a government shutdown. A government shutdown did not happen. There could have been a countdown to shutdown clock, but it, you know, they like didn't even have to dust it off because the good people in Congress uh, struck a bipartisan compromise uh, on a massive one trillion dollar spending bill, another six hundred billion dollar tax bill. And even though it has some stuff in it that the president doesn't really like that much and the Democrats don't really like that much, the president is going to sign this thing. No drama. You so know Paul Ryan's matter? beard is a good luck charm. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Ryan's hunter's beard. Yeah. Paul he, Ryan, uh, Speaker of the House, who, has been growing a beard. Who has a yeah? beard, which well, I don't personally. like, actually. Uh, okay. Oh, I think it's great. <laughs> but anyway. apart and aside from his sartorial changes, he has proven to be rather up to the task of taking over as Speaker of the House. In place of John Boehner, he's worked well with Nancy Pelosi, uh, surprisingly well, perhaps. He has obviously negotiated with the Senate leaders and probably backdoor pretty effectively with the White House as well. So it scarcely seems like Christmas here in Washington. It's 60 degrees outside. There's no snow. (laughs) And we don't even get the threat of a government Uh shutdown. So does this mean that he has successfully neutralized the Freedom Caucus, at least for now? He has marginalized them enough. And there are roughly 40 people in the Freedom Caucus, and they were adamantly opposed. I guess to we should both say who these. they are for folks that don't know. The, the Freedom Caucus, I'm going to name all 40 now, so Do pay it. close attention. <laughs> this is a group of people Trent who are Franks. orthodox, if you will, doctrinaire Republican conservatives who feel that making deals with Democrats or even making deals with the Senate undermines their philosophical purity and means that they're not being true to the voters who sent them here. And they're the ones who kind of pushed out Boehner. They are very much the people who pushed out Boehner after the Tea Party elections of 2010 and 2014. And one last thing before we get to those things that we can't let go. Danielle Kurtzleben, you have a story that's going up about evangelicals. And uh, we talk a lot about evangelicals uh, on this podcast, especially when we're talking about Iowa. Right. Because evangelical voters are very important in Iowa. I I say that in my sleep almost. Mm Mm-hmm. But you are here to say that evangelicals, we don't know who they are. Well, it depends on, more to the point, it depends on how you count them. I mean, the argument I would make is that the ratio of how much this term is used in political reporting to how well-defined it is, is huge. I mean, we say this... this, You mean out of whack? It's totally out of whack. It's, It's a little bit crazy. I mean, depending on the poll that you use, evangelicals make up either... You know, 35 percent of the U.S. population uh, of the U.S. adult population or six percent that in technical terms among pollsters is flipping big. So the question is, you know, technical term, technical term. And so it, and it depends on how you measure it. So here are the different ways that pollsters or social scientists do measure evangelicalism. They come up to you and they ask do you consider yourself an evangelical or a born-again Christian? Sometimes they just say, do you consider yourself an evangelical Christian? Sometimes they'll ask you, what sort of church do you go to? Do you go to a Southern Baptist church? Do you go to a Methodist church? And sometimes, and this is getting increasingly technical, you have a few pollsters who ask you about your specific beliefs. Do you believe Satan is real? Do you believe Jesus led a sinless life? That sort of thing. And when you use that measure, you only get 6% of people. Now, Wow. Right. Now, granted, you know, you don't hear Barna cited in a lot of these political uh, political news stories. But the real question is, what sort of people are you getting if you're Gallup, if you're CNN, if you're whoever, and you're saying, do you consider yourself an evangelical? What really are you measuring? Because 
I probably have a different definition of evangelical than you do, than Ron does, than Sam exactly. does. And like what I love that you bring up in your piece is the racial difference between this group. Absolutely. Because if the question is, are you measuring my religious beliefs effect on my vote? Race is a great thing to look at, because if you were to read the political news, you would think, oh, if you have evangelical beliefs, however you define them, which is there's a big wide range. But if you have evangelical beliefs, it just makes you, you know, predisposed to being a Republican. Well, I mean, black Protestants, it's often not broken down into black evangelicals, but black Protestants overwhelmingly vote Democratic, while white evangelicals tend to vote Republican. Yeah. You know, I mean, as someone who was raised black Pentecostal, right. um, our pastor growing up was very apolitical. But the one time she mentioned politics directly in church, uh, the night before Bush invaded Iraq, she prayed against the war. Huh. And it, it was like, I've never forgotten that moment, but it just speaks to this difference that you point out. Right. And, and another thing, you know, that uh, actually Ron and I were talking about this just before we started recording, but really what sort of uh, sparked this whole idea is that I grew up in in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Uh, there are lots of ELCA people hmm. in Iowa and Minnesota and, you know, the upper Midwest. But And so we talk about evangelical voters in Iowa, but by many uh, denominational definitions of what an evangelical is, the Evangelical Lutheran Church is not yeah, evangelical. Yeah, Lutherans Even aren't evangelical. Well, some Lutherans are, though. That's some are and some aren't. And many churches that take the title evangelical as part of their formal name would not meet the criteria See, that like, most theologians would set down for evangelical Christianity. Right. I think there is such a wide variety here that the loose usage of this, particularly when in Iowa, where you hear people say 60% of the Republicans in Iowa are evangelicals as though they were identical to each other, it's absurd. And it, it's misleading, but it's useful in terms of sorting out different kinds of Republican conservatism, and so it's going to be used and used a lot in the next six and a half weeks. Okay. And now it's time for Can't Let It Go, when we share something we just cannot stop thinking about during the week, politics or otherwise. Sam? So there's this Carly Fiorina video that's been making the rounds online this week. And I can't even begin to tell you how crazy it is. And Carly Fiorina is who's running for president, uh, Republican, Republican, woman. the only woman in the race on that side. And she put out this video of like her and dogs on a couch. You're allowed on the couch at my house. So it starts out Got super so cute, far. yeah. Aww, and it's yeah. and it's basically Carly talking about how everyone loves dogs and dogs are better than cats. A dog is sad when you're gone. Bye. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. That makes sense to me. But then it turns left. And before you know it, she talks to one dog and says, You know, President Obama ate one of your cousins. Vote Republican. Okay. Uh, are, are dogs not voting sufficiently Republican? I don't know. Wait, I don't know. Wait, wait. Uh, so when did President Obama eat? He talks about in his dog. book about even... during his childhood he did try dog because he lived in oh, Indonesia, cool. right? Yeah. So Jared that just, happened. Jared just thought this was a ridiculous no, that joke actually that wasn't going to land. But oh, hearing okay. Carly Fiorina look into a puppy's eyes and say Obama ate your cousin, it was strange. <laughs> is this a campaign video? Is this? It's a... like a kind of behind the scenes. I mean, it's, she's her team is part of it. Oh, her okay. Team this isn't one of them. those IJ videos, like the one where Lindsay it is Graham IJ. Actually. Oh, it is. Oh. Well, who are they? Oh, independent a, Independent they're, Journal. They're a website that does political stuff meant to go viral. So then she's on the couch with these dogs, and she starts giving the dogs names of her competitors. I think I could use you all for debate prep. You could be Donald Trump, 
Look at that face. And then at I one mean, point, she literally, and I'm not making this up, she eats a milk bone. Dog food. I always used to eat milk bones as a kid. I thought they were very good. Here. She's like snacking yeah. on the milk bone. Dogs. Not gonna touch yeah. that. I don't understand. What, like, what is this? Have y'all seen it? No, it is so crazy. No, no. I am reassured, though, that this wasn't actually her campaign, but this was an operation that exists to make goofy videos. But why would she agree to do it? Because everybody else has agreed to do mm-hmm. stuff. These candidates are trying to draw attention to themselves. When you're in a crowd of 14, um, oh my God, it's still 14 do. people. <laughs> uh, Ron Elving, what can you not let go? All right, on a serious note, I hesitate to interject this, but how easy it was to shut down the Los Angeles schools, mm-hmm. the entire school system, public, and then the private schools also closed because everyone panicked because of an email warning them. Now, let's absolutely understand that after what happened in San Bernardino, everybody in Southern California is clearly on edge and any suggestion of a possible attack on a soft target, nothing softer than a school, is horrific. But how easy it was for some anonymous person, not even necessarily in this hemisphere, to shut down an enormous school system affecting millions of people. We're going to have to figure out some way to relate to all of this more practically than we have thus far. Mm-hmm. I mean, as someone who lived in L.A. for a while and did a few stories on the school district, they are not known for their phenomenal leadership. <laughs> judgment could be in an judgment. Issue. I mean, this is the same district that had the iPad scandal that ended up with mm-hmm. the superintendent resigning. You know, um, they had the iPad hacking thing. <laughs> They've had like they're just they're full of drama generally. So I was not surprised to hear that this district did it and, and others did not take the bait. Yes, New York. For for example, exactly. did not yet. Let's just have some sympathy for them because obviously the explanation you'd have to come up with if you had this warning and something actually exactly. happened is unthinkable. Uh, Danielle, Danielle Kurtzleben. All right. Uh, what I can't let go this week is municipal trash collection. Ooh, so exciting. You know, I had almost <laughs> chosen that. Uh, you know, I, I decided to scoop it up since you guys, you know, didn't do it. So Somebody has to. Scoop it up. All right. So um, a couple of my... Urban planning type friends, also a few um, Minnesotans that I know, sent me this great article from a website called MinPost. The title of it is St. Paul's Libertarian Alleys Raise Questions of Basic Civics. And basically, the point here is this. The city of St. Paul, huge, huge city, does not have city-run trash pickup, which no, I did not know. wait, really? I lived in Minneapolis for years, and just, I guess I never ventured across the that, river. What is, that that is not Minnesota nice. What do I they know. do with their trash, then? You get a private trash pickup company. By neighborhood or by what? Well, so this is the thing. I, I, this piqued my interest. So I started Googling around. I Googled the St. Paul City website. And I, and I just Googled St. Paul City trash pickup. And it says the city of St. Paul does not have trash pickup. Ask your neighbors. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you could have one company picking up my trash. And yeah. you could have another company picking up my neighbor's trash. Why right. is this the case? The short version, it's... The way it's been for, I mean, inertia. Let's say inertia. This is, this is politically speaking, St. Paul has been kind of a lefty leaning city over the years. And maybe this was done in the sense that people could get together and organize their own neighborhood trash pickup and hire somebody and do it as a kind of cooperative. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so part of the thing about this article is that you have one sort of um, civic group that has put together a study of how to fix this, of how to you know, organize the city's private trash collectors by neighborhood to stop, you know, 
sending five trucks down your road because there's all sorts of implications here. You have these gig- these gargantuan trucks going down your street. It crumbles your street because these trucks are huge. They mm-hmm. get the technical the, term is ginormous. Huge. Yeah, ginormous. huge. And the um, this article says these trucks get three miles to the gallon. Oh so God. I mean, they're environmental. The whole thing is inefficient. Oh, it totally is. The trucks aren't running on garbage. <laughs> I should think not yet. Be is the private garbage industry lobbying against changes to yeah. the system? Oh yeah, the article quotes you know um, private garbage companies saying we we really don't like this, of course. But I mean, yeah. the whole thing is fascinating. And of course, you know, while we all, I mean, the broader thing here is like you know, we all freak out about the presidential race, which is of course consequential. Senate races, House races, all the of local that. Stuff matters. But your local stuff totally matters. I mean, this is this is an amazing story. I think about just uh, local level politics and how ingrained, you know, systems can get, even systems that, you know, may not be optimal. Yeah. So from municipal trash pickup to Tamara Keith, what can't you let go this week? What I cannot let go hasn't yet happened. And depending on when you're listening to this podcast, you may be able to tune in to watch this tonight. 10, 9 central on NBC, running wild with Bear Grylls. December 17th. See the president like you've never seen him before. Mr. President. Stranded in the Alaskan wilderness. Put me to work. With Bear Grylls. I'm tougher than I look. Oh, my God. historic (laughs) hour of television. Running wild Thursday, December 17th on NBC. Nope, nope, no way, no how, nope, not. I did not even know who Bear Grylls was until today. Let me tell you who Bear Grylls is. I have a little tape for you. He is most famous for his previous show, Man vs. Wild. He's like a former special ops guy who knows how to survive in any situation and they drop him into terrible situations and he survives and he is most famous for drinking his own urine and i'm not expecting this to be particularly Mm. appetizing (laughs) (laughs) that was him pouring his own urine from a snake carcass that he peed into i saw one where he ate a snake too yeah. Not the same one, I hope. Uh, I hope not. So when people heard that President Obama was going to tape this thing in Alaska with Bear Grylls, someone put a petition on the White House website. Anyone can put a petition on the White House website. But this particular petition says, make President Obama drink his own urine while filming Running Wild with Bear Grylls in Alaska. That got 706 virtual signatures. Oh. Okay. However, President Obama, in the preview, you can see he does eat something weird. It might be a salmon or but something. But, like, I just don't well, imagine him as an well. outdoorsy kind of guy. Like, could could Obama start his own fire? Well, it turns out that is in this episode. <laughs> does he oh. do it? And according to something I read in Variety, President Obama does a very good job of starting a fire. All right. That, that Br'er Grylls is like, oh, man, you do this well, too? <laughs> Okay. Okay. So that's what I can't let go this week. I will be watching. You will all now be watching, I'm sure. And that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Stay tuned to the podcast this weekend for a big surprise we are not yet allowed to talk about. And as always, you can talk to us on Twitter. Sometimes we respond. Or listen to more of our political coverage on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith, NPR White House correspondent. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. Ron Elving, journalist emeritus. Daniel Kurtzleben, political reporter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast.
Thanks for listening to the show this year. We want to let you know that this holiday season, NPR podcasts have you covered, no matter what your mood. Political or science insights to share with your feisty aunt? Done. Surprising stories and interviews to discuss and debate? Yes. Year-end lists of the best movies, music, and books? That, too. Along with stories you can escape with for some holiday alone time. Discover some new favorite podcasts now at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. And enjoy the holidays.